And one of the stops of the Dunbar series is in Fernie, BC. And my best friend, Claire Smallwood, happens to live in that town. And so I was already like in the hospital thinking about this stuff like, oh, this is so cool. Like maybe someday I'll be able to go and witness, you know, this this kind of flagship adaptive mountain bike, adaptive downhill mountain bike race series. And then the dates were released for the series. And I realized that the first stop of the race, Fernie, well, one of the first stops of Dunbar series um, was in Fernie and it was the day of my accident. And so in the spinal cord community, we often celebrate um, our accident days as our alive days. And it's, you know, a time to, you know, reflect or, you know, kind of pay homage to, you know, the, the things that you've gone through and sort of your new life. And so I thought, well, this sounds like a really cool opportunity for me to be able to, you know, reframe the day of my accident and start to build new memories and kind of set a precedent for what I want this day to look like. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 85 features Annika Wade. Annika sustained a spinal cord injury in July of 2021. Annika is very open and candid about her life and the things that have changed since her injury. Through this, she provides a lot of insight into life with her mindset of staying present and willingness to just want to help others in any capacity that she can. If you want to learn more about the details of Annika's injury, she goes into depth about this on Payson McAlvin's Adventure Stash podcast. The links for these interviews can be found in the show notes. The reason I say this is because while we did go into the details about her injury, we really wanted to focus on what Annika is doing now, things she has been learning through her journey into adaptive mountain biking, and what the future may hold. Annika still has an active GoFundMe page. The link to this page can be found in the show notes. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with tagging Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Annika Wade. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Annika Wade. Annika is a person that I've been paying attention to from the outside because she she got on my radar before what we're going to talk about, which is the fact that she's an adaptive mountain biker, but she was on my radar well before that because we have a mutual friend by the name of Brooke Gowdy. And Brooke is doing a lot of incredible things in the world of mountain biking as well. And so that's kind of how Annika got on, on my radar. But we're going to talk about a lot of the stuff that Annika has been up to lately, which is some traveling and how she is adapting. Maybe that, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but adapt, adapting to her new world of adaptive mountain biking. So how's it going today, Annika? 
Oh, it's going pretty well. Yeah. Thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. I'm, I feel super fortunate to have you on. And, and as we talked about offline, you did a couple interviews with Payson McKelvin on his podcast known as the adventure stash. And for those that haven't listened to those interviews, I think it would be super important for you to check those interviews out because Annika goes into great detail as to what, what she's been through and what she's doing now in a couple different episodes. And, and Payson does a really good job asking questions and you do an incredible job going into great detail as to what's, what's really going on in your world. And I think anyone that's heard those podcasts are, you know, it's really opened their mind with what, what goes on in the world of, of being an adaptive uh, athlete, mountain biker, how did even function, you know, now that it's changed a lot with that. Let's go into your incident a little bit and kind of bring the listeners up to speed with, well, first how you got into mountain biking. That's pre-incident. Yeah, certainly. So, um, I, you know, like most people have been riding bikes kind of on and off for the majority of my life, you know, learned at a young age, but it wasn't until I moved to Santa Fe that I really was introduced to mountain biking as a sport. Um, so I was uh, working at a tech company in Santa Fe and uh, all of a sudden I got an email from somebody at work and they said, Hey, we're starting a mountain biking club meet at this trailhead this day. And it was about a month out. And I said, you know what? I could probably, I could probably get into mountain biking. I had been looking for new ways to like recreate in the outdoors at that point. I mean, I enjoy hiking, but it's just oftentimes a little bit too slow of a pace for me. And I wanted something that was a little bit faster and a little bit um, more adrenaline inducing. And so I saw that email and I was like, all right, that's great. And so I went online and bought a Diamondback hardtail. And it was, you know, delivered, I don't know, probably a week or so later and put it together myself and got all of the necessary equipment, like helmet and knee pads and, you know, started to do a lot of research on like, what do you need to learn and uh, what do you need to do for like your first mountain bike ride? Um, And then it was about probably about a week before the actual like slated group ride. And I was getting pretty nervous and I was like, well, I guess I have to go hit the trails. So Um, I decided to go to that trailhead that we were going to meet at and then, you know, just start poking around. Um, I think I had found MTV project at that point. So I knew, you know, about like obviously trail ratings. And so kind of constructed a intro loop for, for myself to do. And immediately it was like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought. I remember going up like the first hill and being like, okay, I'm going to need to develop some endurance for this sport. Um, and I immediately got hooked and, you know, just started going back to that, that same trail system in Santa Fe, La Tierra, um, almost on a daily basis. Uh, I never actually rode with the group from work. Um, yeah, it just, it didn't work out, but I was hooked nonetheless. So, yeah. Yeah. And I can appreciate those, you know, the, the comments about mountain biking in general, because yeah, I was just, I just had this conversation last night with my girlfriend who is, a, who is also a brand new mountain biker. She just, she just got her first mountain bike two weeks ago. So mm-hmm. she's new. Oh, wow. You know, and she's in, she was into hiking and running and stuff. And she's, she made the comment. She's like, you know, there's, there's something about mountain biking that really kind of lets me get out of my head and, and get out of, you know, my, the daily stuff that we all, you know, need to, escape every now and then, but she's like, there's something about mountain biking that does it differently than everything else I've done and does it better. Yeah. 
I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I just got hooked so easily and, and so quickly is that you are really able to connect with your surroundings and yourself. And oftentimes, like I find, I can't think about anything else, but really the trail in front of me. And that is extremely important, especially with, you know, all of the life commitments we have going on and all of the everyday stressors and, and everything. It's just nice to feel like you can kind of just be present in the moment. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward to the day you were in Angel Fire and had your accident. Yeah, certainly. So uh, it was July 17th, 2021. Um, so a little over a year ago, about a year and a month ago, I was in Angel Fire, a place that, that I ride, I used to ride quite frequently um, at the bike park um, and was headed out for a day of, you know, park laps and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, it was my first run of the day. I was riding with um, my now partner, Clayton, um, and then two of our other friends. And it was, you know, essentially a warm up lap. We decided to go on, you know, one of our favorite trails, Boulder Dash, which is pretty easy blue jump line. Um, it's a trail I've been on, you know, over 60 times, probably closer to like 80 times in reality. And, um, you know, I know all of the jumps really well. I know kind of you know, where the different spots are and how much speed to carry through things. But um, this day was a little bit differently. I went to go hit a feature, which I've now found out is a, was probably a step down. And uh, as soon as I hit that feature, I realized I was a little bit out of control. I don't know exactly what happened, but I got boosted pretty high. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is not good. So I started to, uh, you know, figure out what I was going to do when I landed. So I landed that. I started to quell some speed and uh, put a lot of pressure on my brakes, wasn't able to avoid the next feature, was, which was a step up. Um, and I hit the, the next feature, which is, I think, about, I don't know, maybe 15 feet or so um, of a step up. So not super large. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm just floating in the air and I hit the, the trail. Pretty much instantly when I hit the trail, I realized I was paralyzed. Um, I could no longer feel anything below my chest. And it was like a very distinct feeling. It was, it's not like there were broken bones or anything like that, but it was kind of like the lack of feeling just happened instantly. Um, there was a void that was there. And so uh, the person that one of the people we were riding with was uh, in front of me and, you know, uh, or no, actually she was behind me. And so she saw what happened and immediately, you know, went into swift action to get patrol, uh, to come and help with rescue. And so fortunately there were quite a few people on the trail that day. It was a weekend. Um, and so a couple of folks that were, you know, just riding the trail offered to help out and, you know, secure the trail. Um, and then also help, uh, patrol with actually loading me on to, you know, the various apparatuses to carry me from point A to point B. So you know, at that moment, I was in an extreme amount of pain. I, I tell people it was like pain level 15. It was higher than pain level 10. It was the most intense pain I've ever felt just radiating from, from my back. And so I was not really sure kind of what had happened, but, you know, we got, we got me off of the trail, um, down from the mountain. They weren't able to land a helicopter on the mountain at that moment. I think all of the helicopters were busy or something. 
And so uh, the plan of action was really just to get me into an ambulance to a hospital in Taos, um, which is about 45 minutes away. And so I uh, got into an ambulance, which was, you know, a very, very bumpy road. If you can imagine at that point, just like all of the twists and turns and being able to feel it with intense pressure and pain. And then I got to Taos and then they immediately started imaging and trying to figure out um, what was going on. I should note that I was like put into a C collar or like a, you know, a restraint around my neck uh, almost immediately. They weren't really sure if I had, you know, broken my neck or my back, but it, you know, it looked pretty like extreme at the moment, you know, or at the time of like what was going on. So once we got to Taos, it was pretty clear that my injuries were very severe. Fortunately, I only, you know, first fractured a couple of my, my vertebra on my back or vertebrae in my back. And then I also um, sustained a fracture in my orbital um, and a broken nose and a couple broken fingers. So I got pretty lucky in that sense that I didn't really like break my legs or my arms or anything else, but it became clear that I was not going to be able to stay at Taos for further care. And that I needed to be airlifted to, you know, a level one trauma center. And so um, at that moment, they started making arrangements for me to, you know, get my flight for life. So, you know, got into a flight for life. At that point, I was like, can I please get some painkillers or something? Is <laughs> that I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. And, you know, I don't think they like purposely like didn't give me them. I think there's just so much going on in the moment. So I'm really glad I asked for those. And the helicopter ride was, you know, very nice and warm and cushy. And I was like, wow, this, this feels really good. Um, thank you for allowing me to feel a little bit better. So, you know, we took flight for life. Um, and at that point, a lot of my memory is like a little unclear from like the helicopter ride until kind of the next morning. So I arrived at UNMH, uh, University of New Mexico Hospital in Albuquerque. And uh, underwent surgery the next morning. My mom and Clayton were both there, which was, you know, really nice to be able to wake up and to be able to see familiar faces. It took like three or four days for me to really get the official news of, of um, kind of like what my diagnosis was. Um, those first few days were really challenging and trying to figure out, you know, is this permanent, right? Like I, I can't move my legs. I can't feel below my chest. Is this something that's going to go away with time? Is it, you know, just the initial shock of an injury or is this, uh, yeah, like a permanent condition? Um, I was aware of spinal cord injuries. However, I wasn't really clear on like all of the ins and outs. So uh, once I finally got my official diagnosis that, you know, I had sustained a spinal cord injury, um, uh, things started to make a lot more sense. And it, it started to really set in that this was, this was going to be a more or less permanent um, injury and situation. So, yeah. Why does it take days for them to tell you that? Um, you know, I'm not really sure. I think, you know, to uh, one point is I think they really want to see what can happen in the first like couple days, right? Like there's a lot of swelling that can happen. They need to do like accurate imaging around like the state of your spinal cord that sort of like initial imaging that I did in, in Taos was like, was just enough to let them know that stuff was seriously wrong. Right. But they didn't really have time to like get all of the good angles that they might need to see, like really the state of the spinal cord. 
Um, and then there's always the hope that, you know, some type of surgery or, you know, hardware might kind of like straighten things out and maybe like lessen some of the bruise or, or whatever it is that's going on. But I, I would ask every single person that would come into the ICU, especially in the morning during rounds, I would just say, Hey, like, are, are we going to talk about the fact that like, I can't move my legs? Like, is this, is this permanent? Like, am I paralyzed? Like, do I have a spinal cord injury? And people were very quick to just kind of say, Oh, the, the doctor will be, will be in, in a few minutes, or, you know, the surgeon will be in maybe not even a few minutes, the surgeon will be in at some point and, and he'll be able to give you further information. And so when the neurosurgeon did come in, he handed me a binder and, you know, it said, you know, spinal cord injury, um, and had kind of all the relevant information. And so that was the moment where it was really clear that, okay, this is what's going on. And I, and I appreciated that. I mean, I had started to put the pieces together, obviously. I mean, you're, you're laying in bed and you can't move. So something seriously is going wrong. Right. And so I had started to put the pieces together, but it wasn't really until that moment that I was able to like, kind of begin the the journey to accepting sort of the injury and and all that into that entails. Yeah, I suppose now that you ex- explain it that way, you know, you don't want to give somebody, you know, some information to make their head go someplace that it maybe shouldn't go at that time, right? Yeah, absolutely. You'll like or not you will, but I have noticed in this world that there's a lot of that, right? So even in rehab there's kind of an emphasis to like not say specifically like you will never walk or like, you know, walking is out of the picture. Like my surgeon did tell me that there was like, I don't know, he gave like some very small percentage, like, you know, there's like a 2% chance that you'll be able to walk or something. Um, but specifically I've noticed in the rehab setting, there is a lot of like care around how you kind of deliver that news and, and and what news you deliver, right? Because I think there is a lot of harm that can be done for certain individuals if like you deliver that news like too quickly or too soon or in a specific manner. I mean, it's a very traumatic thing to have happened, right? One day you're doing all of your favorite things or living your life. And then the next day, you know, very distinctly everything changes, right? Like your whole existence has changed in, you know, just a matter of seconds. So yeah, both physically and mentally. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've, for those who have had the unfortunate experience of even just taking an ambulance ride, I was, I remember the, the one and only ambulance ride I've been in and I wasn't, you know, I had not injuries like that. I couldn't believe how rough those things are. So when you're saying like, <laughs> it, you, and you think like, is it, are these things really this bad to ride in for everybody? <laughs> I I am not sure. I mean, I, if you're riding in an ambulance, things are probably pretty bad, right? Like you don't just get in them for fun. So you probably sustain some type of injury or, you know, enduring some type of trauma. Right. So I think that just, that just kind of exacerbates it all. But I I think they could probably replace some shocks on those ambulances (laughs) to make it a little bit of a smoother ride. Cause it was a very rough ride. I just remember like, you know, being really aware of like all of the movements and then also being aware of like, at one point I, I felt like I was like kind of sliding off of, you know, whatever they had me in like the gurney. And I was like, Hey, I need some help. I'm like kind of sliding a little too far. And, you know, they like put additional restraints, but yeah, it's, it's not really a ride. you want to, you want to have too often in your life? 
I will say flight for life's are pretty comfortable, but I'm not sure if it's because they gave me the painkillers before or what, but that helicopter ride was probably like the best part of the day. <laughs> one of the things that, and, and I know I said we weren't going to recreate Payson's interview, but one of the things that that caught my attention, it was in your second interview, was that you've been able to actually, at least intermittently, regain some sort of feeling in your toes. Is that correct? Um, yeah. So maybe not like full sensation, right? So right now, so I, you know, was officially and and still am officially like classified as a T five complete. So that means you know at that T five level in my my spine, which is like chest level, I should have no feeling or movement below. Right. Um, however, that's not really the case. I've got, you know, abs down to, you know, my hip muscles. Um, and then I have spattered feeling throughout my left side. So I'm able to feel varying levels of pressure, um, all the way down to my feet. And then on my right side, it varies day to day. Sometimes it's to my knees, sometimes it's to my ankles, but I can feel like deep pressure. So like some moments are like, I've been able to feel my dog's tail, like on my knees, you know, when he's like wagging it. And so that's pretty exciting. Um, or just like feeling different, you know, pressure from like things, you know, on, on my body or on my skin or, you know, me pressing down on them. So, yeah. Now, is that something that has that been coming back even stronger? Um, and is that something as a result of the, all the therapy you've, you've been able to go through? Yeah, certainly. So it's, you know, the thing is that we really don't know a lot about spinal cord injuries and really a lot about uh, neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. So, you know, I attribute a lot of my healing to the integrative therapies that I'm undergoing, like, you know, acupuncture and then obviously rehab, right? So Craig Hospital, all of the adaptive exercise that I do at New Ability in Denver, and then actually like some just functional things, right? So like uh, riding my adaptive mountain bike has seemed to have a really positive impact on my core and my core strength we've noticed, or just like learning how to do different types of transfers or, you know, engaging in different activities has really helped. So I think it's really a combination of a lot of things. And then obviously like, you know, your diet or, or your nutrition and, and supplements you take and getting enough sleep, I think also really helps, but it's just a, it's just a hodgepodge, right? Like, not really sure which one is working the best. So it's just like just doing everything all at once, all the time. <laughs> so. And those are all super positive things. Let's talk about, um, you've since gone back and you've since gone back s several times, it sounds like, or even more than several times back to Angel Fire. Yeah, I have. How has, how has that experience been? Um, it's been really good and really positive. I think you know, for me, I just wanted to develop a really healthy relationship with uh, my accident site and and my accident. And so I've been really intentional about um, how I interface with these different things, right? Like interfacing with like, you know, the site of my accident, interfacing with the sport, you know, related to my accident, um, interfacing with just like all aspects of my trauma. So it was really intentional for me to get back to angel fire. And it was in a lot of ways, you know, for me, a sign of like progress and recovery mentally. Right. The first time I went was for opening weekend. Um, I didn't get to ride opening weekend, but I just wanted to be there. And I just wanted to see what everyone was up to and just kind of be in that environment. And so, you know, I rode, you know, up to the mountain in my mountain bike and just kind of hung out for a few minutes and, 
started to think about like what it would look like for me to be able to load onto the lift and, and start to ride the trails. Um, fortunately, you know, I know all of the trails at Angel Fire, like the back of my hand. So, you know, I immediately started to figure out, okay, well, what's my trail progression going to look like? Right. And, and also just like being really understanding of the fact that like, I am starting a new sport, right? Like it is adaptive mountain biking, but it is not the same as, you know, upright mountain biking. So I started, you know, engaging with Angel Fire in that way. Um, and then uh, Clayton is really fortunate enough to know a lot of the folks that work at the resort as he's worked at Angel Fire before. So we started getting in touch with um, mountain operations and lift operations um, and the bike shop and the trail crew around what it would look like for me to actually ride the mountain, right? And what it would look like for me specifically you know, without the use of my legs, how am I going to load onto the lift? That was like the biggest barrier. It's like, once I get up to the mountain, I can decide or get to the top of the mountain. I can decide what trails I want to go down to, but I need to like get to the top of the mountain. And so we worked with mountain ops and lift ops um, to really understand what that process looks like. We were even able to grab some footage um, through marketing and media um, at Angel Fire to provide um, for further training opportunities and training resources for individuals. So that was, for me, really positive because it felt like, cool, I'm already starting to give back in a way to, you know, pave the way for somebody else to be able to like ride at the resort in a comfortable way. Um, and, you know, it always feels good to like step kind of into like a role of advocacy. So that's kind of how, you know, that relationship started. And then you know, over a period of a couple months, just, you know, I went back quite a bit to, you know, start that process of like learning what it was like to ride my bike downhill. Um, and then also did some like local trail rides and, and just kind of watched the progression there. So it sounds like Angel Fire prior to this didn't really have much of an adaptive scene. And I say that because you go to places, there are some resorts out there that have a pretty strong adaptive scene. One of them being Winter Park has a pretty strong adaptive scene. I believe uh, Jackson, Jackson Hole, I know, has a, a, a growing adaptive scene, you know, and I know same with like Mammoth because I've had Jeremy P. McGee on the show and he spent a lot of years in Mammoth as an adaptive athlete, you know, and so yeah. is, this, is this something that's really new to Angel Fire and something that they're really starting to embrace? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think like thinking about for one, the population of New Mexico, right? I think there's like, I don't know, it's like 2 million people in the state of New Mexico. New Mexico is, it's a very large, you know, area, right? Like geographic area, but it has actually a pretty low population, right? And so just even thinking about that, you know, there's not a large population of individuals that are in New Mexico. And then Angel Fire is in Northern New Mexico, right? So it's even further from like the central population hubs and, you know, all those barriers to entry around like entering a sport and adaptive, you know, mountain biking and, and sports. So there hasn't been a really large, I think, adaptive mountain biking scene at Angel Fire. However, um, Bowhead, um, the makers of my bike, actually, uh, somebody from Bowhead actually went to Angel Fire last year, or no, maybe not last year, the, or the year before or something, and rode all of the trails and said, yep, this bike can, you know, can traverse this, this area. So, you know, for me, it's like, I would love to see more people riding their adaptive bikes at Angel Fire. I think, you know, there's so much opportunity there. Um, it's such a beautiful area. 
it's, you know, also accessible in a sense that like, you know, some resorts, you know, charge like a super arm and a leg for like season passes and, and lodging and all of that. And New Mexico for me has always been a place and Angel Fire has always been a place that's been like more affordable in that sense. So there's a lot of benefits for people to like go and ride there. But yeah, from what I take it, there hasn't been a lot of adaptive mountain biking at the resort. Now, there is an adaptive skiing program at Angel Fire, and I don't know too much about that, but I do know that that does exist. So, Yeah, I'm going to take us into the weeds with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that something you're looking at getting into, getting into the snow sports side of things? Um, Yeah, I am. So I definitely would really like to try um, sit skiing. Uh, I have a couple kind of tentative lessons booked for next winter. Um, so I'll, I'll start with that. I, yeah, I've got like a whole list of the adaptive sports I want to try. So I want to try sit skiing. I think I'm going to try surfing probably next is going to be like my next big sport I'll try. And then, yeah, you just gotta, just gotta try them all. You know I mean? It's, it's kind of a funny thing, but it's like, you know, I have like a second chance at life. And so like, I've got this new body and new life and it's like, why not just try everything and, you know, see what works and what doesn't. So. Have you met Jeremy P. McGee? I have not met him in real life. Yeah. I'm hoping to meet him in Bentonville in October or, you know, sometime around then. So. Cause he's yeah. uh he's a big time surfer. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's one of his, you know, that was one thing that he was really, he was not a mountain biker prior to his accident. And he'll actually tell you that he's still not a mountain biker. He actually relates um, his his adaptive mountain biking to him is more relatable to trail running. Right. You know, which is, which I found interesting when we, when we talked about that, but he's huge into surfing and was always into water sports. So that's some, that's someone in a resource that you should definitely lean on. Yeah. And he's really big into the snow sport side of things too, but he was a snowboarder prior to his incident as well. Have, were you yeah. doing any snow sports at all uh, um, prior to? I have. I've snowboarded and then I had taken up skiing in Santa Fe, but I uh, did not ski the year of my accident because I was in a skiing accident the year before where I dislocated both shoulders. So I was like, well, I'm going to kind of like save, (laughs) save my body for mountain biking because I was like, you know, the consequences are a little bit higher with some of the stuff that I was doing for mountain biking, where I wanted to be like present for races. And I was like, I can't, can't risk injuring myself on a ski run for those things. So it's interesting because <laughs> I've been into snow sports almost my whole life. And I still like, if I'm, if I had to pick an activity, I would definitely save myself for mountain biking and avoid things like skiing from an injury perspective. So I could mountain bike more. Right. And it's, I don't, and I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's the length of the season. You know, you have definitely, you have more time to be off of snow doing different activities, you know, the snow, the snow season, especially in recent years has got, that window has gotten smaller, unfortunately. Right. You know, but it's still incredible. Yeah, it is. I will say that navigating snow in a wheelchair is quite challenging. I found out this winter. So yeah. So I will be looking for like very accessible opportunities to engage with snow moving forward. We got all, not even a lot of snow in Denver this year, but just enough to where it was challenging, where I had to like, you know, stay at home uh, for, you know, days at a time. And so I was like, all right, you know, the real way for me to like be in the snow is if I'm going to be doing activities, right? Like I like to like kind of maximize my time, but I don't want to be like stuck in a house in the snow. 
Yeah. yeah, let's go. You know, we're I wanted to talk about Canada, but before that, we should probably talk about Bowhead and mm-hmm. just how that's gone in terms of, you know, getting getting your adaptive mountain bike, learning your adaptive mountain bike and all the stuff that comes with that. Yeah, certainly. So yeah, for folks that don't know, I ride um, a Bowhead Reach. Um, it's an adaptive mountain bike that has three wheels. It has uh, three shocks and then a crazy amount of articulation and lean. Um, and so there's a pin in the bike. You take the pin out and then the bike just is fully able to articulate. And what that translates into when you're riding is really the ability to um, you know, go in off-camber situations, it really does super well in tech and rocks and just responds, you know, really well to the trail around you. And so in a lot of ways, it does feel a lot like upright mountain biking. There is that balance aspect to it. And so I was fortunate enough to get my bike in November. Um, and that was really, you know, through the help of, you know, first and foremost, Pearl Izumi, um, and then also a grant from High Fives. And that allowed me to, you know, get my bike take care of, you know, shipping and then also get all of the cool like accessories and, you know, a few backup parts as well. And then I also, you know, am supported by Bowhead too. I'm on their, their sports development team, which has been a really positive experience. So yeah, the first ride that I ever did was, you know, a little bit daunting. I was not really sure what to expect. I was really excited and I was also still in my back brace too, when I was on my first ride, which is probably something that the surgeons, you know, tell you you shouldn't do, but I was like, well, what's going to happen? Like, you know, I'll be pretty safe and careful and still, you know, wear all of my protective gear. Um, And I just started progressing just kind of like how you do mountain biking. I have the, you know, I guess the privilege of having had training to be a mountain bike coach. Right. And so I've really approached my entry into the sport from like a very logical standpoint, right? Like really trying to learn like foundational skills and progress safely. And, and that's also been really helpful to me too, for like managing my expectations, because it's so easy sometimes to be like, okay, I'm going to get out there and like ride this trail. Like I've ridden before and it's going to be exactly the same. And what I found is that's absolutely not the case at all. Right. Like I really do have to learn this sport in every aspect. And, and I'm being like really careful too to not like ride above my ability. Right. And put myself in situations that are a little bit, you know, out of my skill level, just because the consequences are higher with, um, you know, my bike weighing so much and, and sometimes, you know, inaccessible trail features. So I, you know, just first started working on you know, balancing on the bike and seeing what that was like. And then, you know, starting to do a little bit of like, you know, corners, you know, very, you know, corners on flat ground, obviously. Right. And then I, I was at a Ruby Hill bike park, which is in Denver. It's a, you know, purpose-built bike park, you know, in the city of Denver. And so I was able to kind of like, after doing some like, you know, skills, I guess, you know, on the grass a lot, I was able to take that, you know, into a couple different features and start feeling like, what does it feel like, you know, with a little bit of a berm here or, you know, a little bit of a larger corner here. Um, And so that's kind of like how I started. And then every ride since then, I kind of like set a little goal of what skill I want to work with and then slowly start to work with those skills. So 
right now I'm working on uh, big berms and tight corners and big berms in the sense that like, they're like steep. And then they're also the kind where, you know, you can't really mess up, right? Like you have to have technique to enter them. Right. And like that, I found that too, like with upright mountain biking, right? Like you can get away with some stuff without skill, but once you start to get to some of these larger features, like skill does become important. And so that was like the big kind of focus of my trip to Canada was just really focusing on big berms and corners. And then also kind of like the mental hurdles that go with that too. It's funny when you're like, you know, I am lower to the ground. So you think that like, I would have some, I don't, I don't know if it would be like this mental thing, but I would think that it would be like, oh, it's not that far to fall. Right. But there is something about like not having the use of your legs and then being in this really large bike and falling that sometimes is like, oh gosh, I really don't want to do that. And so I'm working on like really carrying speed through those features. Right. And like, not, you know, tensing up and breaking right when I get to the feature, but like, oh, I can't make it. Like I've got to commit and carry speed to get through there. So, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like yeah. your bowhead and, and I think you could um, expand on this a little bit, but it sounds like your bowhead, you almost get that, you can almost get that sense of that bike body separation with the way that it leans. Would that be a correct statement or an assessment? Yeah, I would definitely say that. And that's actually, you know, something that I, as soon as I got the bike, I was like, oh, this is a lot like bike body separation, right? The only problem is, is like, I'm not really separating from the bike, right? Like, um, it, because I am kind of strapped in and my legs are strapped in. So I think, you know, like the term we're kind of using is like leaning or, or whatever. Right. But it is like a very similar principle, right? Like you do have to kind of like maneuver your body to be able to, uh, traverse certain features. So yeah, there, there's a pretty big learning curve with it. Like I'm, I don't know how many months in I am. Um, and I, I realized that when I was riding up in Fernie at Fernie mountain Alpine resort, I was like, gosh, I'm having a really hard time with these, these berms and these corners. Like what is going on? Like, I know that these are a little bit like, you know, higher skill level than I've ridden before. And then I started to watch some bowhead videos and I was like, oh my gosh, I've been leaning the wrong way. Like, and so somehow like, you know, in the last month before that, I just started like reverting to some other kind of way of riding. And I, I think I attribute it to really like how you ride a corner or a berm as an upright mountain biker. Right. So I was like applying that principle, but it did not translate. And I was like, that was like a big aha moment. I was like, okay, I need to be a lot more intentional as I'm approaching these features and like, really like remember the technique. And so my goal is really to like, you know, start to, you know, dial some of these skills in more finely. And then also like engage in a clinic or, you know, um, interface with the coach. So I can get some of like these little extra things with somebody that is familiar with, you know, with this style of biking. It's funny. Cause I always ride with people, you know, because, um, you know, it's, it is really a safety thing, right? Like you were talking about with, with Jeremy, it's like, sometimes you get yourself in these situations and you need help. Like if I tip over a rollover, I might need somebody to like put me more upright or, you know, just little things like swinging my tail around. But it's funny because sometimes I'll ride with people, you know, able-bodied folks and, 
you know, they'll start to give me tips and tricks on how to ride my bike. And I'm like, Hey, hold on a second. <laughs> I was like, I appreciate this, but it, this is very different. Like you're more than welcome to try my bike out, but we are in like a little bit of a different arena here. Like some of the principles apply and then some of them don't. Right. Like, so it's been interesting. Yeah. And you could actually, that's a good metaphor for life because it's like, you have the friends, like when you're struggling with something that want to give you the advice to get through whatever it is. And it's like, at the same time, it's like, really the best thing you could maybe do is just listen. If I'm, you know, <laughs> if I'm struggling with something like, I don't, I don't really want the advice, but I need to, I need to vent. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely, I got myself into a situation. Um, I was riding a trail at, at Panorama, uh, mountain resort in in Canada. Right. And it was like a very, very, very steep green trail. I will tell you this, that the, the trails in BC are just like, especially interior BC are just of different magnitudes, right. Than like what I have ever ridden. Um, and so this is like, you know, the easiest trail on the mountain, you know, that's what it says. It's the easiest trail on the mountain. The berms were so steep and I was like, okay, all right. You know, just going along. And I was like, hold on a second. I was like, Clayton, my partner, I was like, Clayton, this is, these are really steep. He's like, I think they're okay. Like, I think they'll do it. I was like, no, I, I think that I might be like, this might be like the end of me. Like, I don't know if I can continue to go. And so I actually got myself into a situation where I was entering a really kind of steeper berm. Um, and I, this is something I have a problem with. I kind of like cut it too close and was going too far on the inside. And there was a massive tipping hazard. Like if I had continued to go on the path that I was going on, I would have tumbled like eight to nine feet into the berm, right? Like it was like that kind of berm. And I was like, oh, geez, well, uh, we might need some help. And so it was not even something that Jess Clayton could help me with. And so fortunately, two people that were riding behind us, you know, happened to come up and they said, oh, is everything okay? I said, actually, it's not. <laughs> I said, um, I do need some help. If you could just help, you know, kind of move my bike. I'm going to just, you know, feather the brakes and, and I just need for you to just kind of maneuver my bike and spot me as I kind of get out of here because I really don't want to tip over. And so that was one of those moments where I was like, yep, always ride with people for sure. And then, you know, also there's something to be said about having people like scout routes for you as well. Right. <laughs> Which yeah. is something we didn't necessarily do with that, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's all, it's all a learning experience. Right. And, and the trails that I used to be able to ride so easily, you know, I have to remember I am riding on a different bike in a different body in a different headspace, a different landscape. There's so many things that are different that I have to just kind of wipe some of that clean and just be like, all right, this is, you know, a brand new experience. So. Well, we've talked about Canada, but we haven't talked about Canada. Let's go to Canada. Yeah. Let's talk about, well, let's kind of let's set the whole stage for what a why you went to Canada and kind of what open, what, how that experience was presented to you and then what you found when you got there. Yeah, certainly. So, um, I, uh, you know, have been following adaptive mountain biking well before my accident, but especially, you know, after my accident, just keep trying to get as plugged in as I can into the scene and the characters and, um, the organizations and the events. And so I've been really fortunate to, um, have had the opportunity to really connect with Kootenay Adaptive Sport Association or CASA. Um, and the folks over at CASA told me about um, an adaptive downhill mountain bike race that happens, um, race series that happens in Canada called the Dunbar Series. 
And one of the stops of the Dunbar series is in Fernie, BC. And my best friend, Claire Smallwood, happens to live in that town. And so I was already like in the hospital thinking about this stuff like, oh, this is so cool. Like maybe someday I'll be able to go and witness, you know, this this kind of flagship adaptive mountain bike, adaptive downhill mountain bike race series. And then the dates were released for the series. And I realized that the first stop of the race, Fernie, well, one of the first stops of Dunbar series um, was in Fernie and it was the day of my accident. And so in the spinal cord community, we often celebrate um, our accident days as our alive days. And it's, you know, a time to, you know, reflect or, you know, kind of pay homage to, you know, the, the things that you've gone through and sort of your new life. And so I thought, well, this sounds like a really cool opportunity for me to be able to, you know, reframe the day of my accident and start to build new memories and kind of set a precedent for what I want this day to look like. And so um, I kind of floated the idea to Clayton. I said, hey, do you want to you want to go hang out in interior BC and like ride for a week? And he's a huge mountain biker. I think it was like, yeah, obviously, like <laughs> we're going to do that. So uh, we started to plan it and, and things just really started to come together. And we drove up from Denver. It took us a couple days. And I was really excited because so many of the people that I had been able to connect with while I was, you know, still at rehab um, and after um, adaptive mountain bikers were going to be there. So in a lot of ways, it's like, you know, I'm meeting like, you know, the best of the best adaptive mountain bikers, um, the people that are really pushing the sport and really advocating for for a space for all at, at resorts, at events, at trails, et cetera. So it was a really exciting experience to, to head out there. And I just remember, you know, finding out about, you know, the race and then being able to get there was just kind of like a full circle moment. Um, I was actually not the only spectator either. I mean, there were lots of spectators for the race series, right. But there were a few of us that were like, you know, obsessed with adaptive mountain biking and just like obsessed with the scene. So that was also fun too. It was like connecting with the other spectators too. And just being like, wow, isn't this so cool in the sports and like, who's your favorite rider and like, you know, what kind of features like, would you want to see them do? And so it was just, it was a lot of fun to be able to, to head up there. I have to ask for selfish reasons because I've been a mountain biker for as many years as I have. And I know this, and I know uh, Tara plays basketball now too, but was Tara Giannis racing? Cause she was like, she was like a, a hero of mine in the nineties when she was killing yeah. it, you know, on the, on team specialized, especially in dual slalom. Yeah. So, right. So she was not there. Um, I think, uh, she's still really engaged in like the other sports like basketball. Um, but I hope that she's there next year. <laughs> yeah. I have had the opportunity to chat with her on the phone. Um, Niall Pinder from Casa and just an all around great person too called me one day and said, Hey, I've got Tara on the other line. You want to, you want to pick up? And I was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> so uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'll stop whatever I'm doing. Um, but yeah, there were, there's like a lot of like really heavy hitters there and people too, that were also like newer to the sport, but had been just like, you know, generally like amazing adaptive athletes too. So that was really exciting. And I had never been to a race to spectate, right? Like I, I have raced before, which is like a very anxiety provoking event, right? Like racing, 
but like spectating is like a lot of fun. It's like, ah, hey, you're not as worried about things and you can really hang out and connect with people. And yeah, it was just all around good vibes. I got, I got really hooked. I was like, all right, this is my job. Now I spectate adaptive mountain biking and hang out at the tents and <laughs> get to meet people and chat about tracks. And so it was a lot of fun. Do you ever see yourself in this journey going back into the competition side of things? Just or do you or do you just prefer to be on the spectator and, and stay on the advocacy side and do do what you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm still not really sure. I think I go back and forth on a daily basis, right? So like yesterday I told some people, hey, I might race sea otter. And then, you know, talking with Clayton, it's like, hey, I might not. I don't know. So, you know, I think it's just kind of whatever seems to work, right? I think there's aspects of competition that are fun, right? And then there are aspects that are like not as fun. And I think for me, I have like a different kind of like risk tolerance or like risk matrix these days now, you know, having sustained a spinal cord injury. And so there's certain things that I'm like, I don't want to put myself in a situation that opens up too much more risk, right? Like that's not to say like, I'm trying to be like super risk or, you know, trying to be, I don't want to say risk first, but I'm trying to be, uh, extra careful. Yeah. Right. And, and I like, I don't want to be like too, too careful and I don't want to not live my life, but I also want to be really conscious of the fact that this is a new injury. You know, I'm supposed to wait like 18 months before engaging in like extreme sports or activities, whatever that means. (laughs) Whatever Um, your definition of that is. Right. I'm like, whatever that means. Um, but yeah, just like really trying to be conscious of that. And so, you know, I would like to race to help, you know, kind of like bring awareness to the sport and, and utilize like, you know, my position and my platform to do that. Um, but long-term I'm not really sure, you know, where I kind of stand on that. I will say that spectating was really fun. I think both Clayton and I decided like we are going back next year for whatever reason, right? Like, either to race or to hang out. Um, we, we just want to be a part of that crew. Yeah. Yeah. That's got a, it's a whole new community to engage in and and a whole new set of friends and, and, and peers bringing it back to the States, being that you're in the Denver area, have you been able to engage much with the adaptive community at Trestle or winter park? Um, so I have not, um, it was kind of our goal really at the beginning of the season, Clayton and I's goal at the beginning of the season to head up to winter park. And we were like, we are going to make winter park our home mountain this season. And then, then we started going back to angel fire. And so uh, we have not been able to use our passes at winter park yet. So that's been a little unfortunate. I'm hoping we will get to ride before the end of the season. I have a surgery coming up, but um, from what I understand, like, you know, it is a really, you know, friendly mountain for, for adaptive athletes. And a lot of that, the mountain biking side of that really is due to, you know, Trevor Kennison really just being an all-star athlete and really pushing the bounds of the sport. And so that's kind of where he rides quite frequently. So we do have kind of like a little trail progression mapped out for when I do arrive there, but we haven't been able to ride yet. Speaking of trails, you know, that's something I, th- I think people assume when you talk about adaptive mountain biking, that trails have to be vastly different, but we've learned that they actually don't need to be different at all with the exception of like the width. How is, you know, how do you view trails now? And what have you learned, you know, since you've, since you've gotten your bowhead and have been able to get out 
specifically in, tra- in terms of trails and, and the things you look for? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's something that I'm like really trying to get a lot more plugged in with around like learning kind of the trail standards and, and what it looks like. And so um, the folks over at Kootenai Adaptive Sport Association Aracasa have put out like trail guidelines and those trail guidelines are being, you know, adopted quite widely. Actually, uh, Whistler has their, you know, trail difficulty rating for adaptive, you know, posted which is like a really big step, right? Like, and they have like, you know, AM to be level one, two or green, or, you know, it's not one, two, three, it's like green, blue, black, et cetera. So the big things that like I notice are, you know, obviously trail width, right? Like thinking about, you know, just having enough room for my bike to be able to be on the trail, especially if there's like exposure that becomes really important. Um, Some other things are like sometimes around, you know, overhang of, you know, foliage, et cetera. Like, you know what those like things kind of like whipping you in the face as you're going by, right? Camber is extremely important. There's kind of a degree of camber that can become uh, unmanageable for adaptive bikes, right? And put adaptive riders in, um, and I shouldn't say all adaptive riders, but put, you know, trikes um, and bikes and, and four-wheeled bikes um, in precarious situations, right? And so, Uh, you really want to like kind of avoid that. So I have actually had to have people spot me on sort of like the exposed side of a feature just to ensure that I don't tip over fully. I posted a video not too long ago of me (laughs) tipping over on a feature and, you know, it's something that happens, right. But you want to really avoid that from happening because depending on what that other side looks like, you know, it could be a really long fall or, you know, you could be falling into something that could seriously injure you. Things like corners, berms, and banks, there's kind of a way to design them that um, ensures that there isn't a large tipping hazard, right? Like I'd kind of mentioned when I had entered that berm, you know, I could have fallen eight feet, right? Like obviously there's a like a level of skill required to ride some of these features, right? Which is where like a rating system comes in. Um, but there's also kind of like a level of grade that you want to avoid going over, right? Or we're kind of like breaching. So when I'm looking at trails, like that's kind of what I'm thinking about. And then also sometimes just like the placement of rocks and stuff, right? Like I was on a fairly narrower trail in Netherlands and Colorado and, you know, wasn't, I wasn't particularly off camber. Um, it was, you know, smaller in trail with size. Right. But the thing that was getting me at one part of the trail was the placement of the actual features, right? Like So it was like, I would have to get one wheel like super high on a rock and then the other would kind of have to squeeze through where traditional like, you know, upright mountain bike tire would go through. Right. So it was just enough room for one tire to get through. And then I had to maneuver my three wheeled bike, you know, over that. So, yeah, it's been kind of interesting seeing what that's like. Um, But there's not a lot that that you need to do to make trails accessible, right? Like if you follow kind of the guidelines and I think it would be great to see more Imba chapters really taking initiative, right? Like you don't necessarily need to have an adaptive rider, like come up to you to advocate for it. Like we can just start doing it, right? Start building the trails in a way that everybody can use them and then people will come and people will be able to ride them. And, and, you know, you don't always know everybody that's riding your trails, right? Like you don't get to see every single person, but you know, I think adaptive athletes, especially those that ride, you know, trikes and four-wheeled bikes would really appreciate like 
you know, just a little bit more care around the trail standards. Well, and even something more simple than trail standards is, is just, you know, proper vegetation management, right? Mm -hmm. Like the trail might be, have it meet every single thing that, you know, you or any other adaptive athlete needs to get through. But if they let that vegetation get out of control, it's now not that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just like general maintenance with stuff, you know, and, and having people really go out and, and check things But you know, I've been really fortunate to have been plugged into like some very proactive, like IMBA chapters in the different regions that I've lived in, you know, over the course of a few years. And I would say like most people are just really excited to learn about stuff. Um, and it's, it's awesome that the organizations like CASA are around to really package up the information, right? Because that's what it really comes down to. It's really about like, how are you going to disseminate this information to people where they really are taking it in and understanding it? So I'm excited to be able to take this knowledge moving forward to, you know, to different folks and different trail systems. Yeah. Well, we should get into the, the questions that I got. Oh yeah. I got one from <laughs> Bryce and one from Brooke, and then I have one, one from myself too. Okay. And not that I haven't had a bunch of questions already. <laughs> But it's, it's along more of the lines of where, where Bryce and, and Brooke have gone. And Bryce asks, where the strength and assurance you exude comes from? He'd like to know where the strength and, exu- uh, strength and assurance that you exude, where does that come from inside of you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I attribute a lot of it to sort of my upbringing and my grandfather specifically. Um, and so my grandfather was just, a really huge impact on my life and sort of like how I think and, and how I engage with the world around me. And so, yeah, he just kind of instilled, you know, specific principles. Like some of it was a little funny, like, you know, you can't say the word can't, right. Like there's nothing you can't do just little things like that. And so sometimes I'll catch myself around something and then it's just like that little voice in your head. That's like, Nope, you can't say that. Or, well, you know, you shouldn't say something like that. Can't right? Say can't. <laughs> I know catching myself right there. You shouldn't say something like that or think that way. Um, and then just kind of, yeah, imagining what's possible. I think too, just thinking about like a lot of the adversities that, that my grandparents, you know, face, you know, as um, being black in America, um, everything from, you know, owning homes to, um, you know, being property owners as well to, progression of their careers and watching how they have been able to, you know, gracefully accept life's challenges, um, has been really influential to me and kind of like shaped the way that, that I have interfaced with this accident. Um, so that's one thing. And then, you know, um, my, you know, my interest in Buddhism and my practice with Buddhism, I think has also really helped with, um, sort of allowing me to, see, you know, my life and experiences that I've, that I've had, especially around this trauma and how to kind of interface with them. Yeah. And back on that, the can't thing, you know, I have, I have two young daughters that I'm raising their six and nine and I try to impart the same thing on them and I I'll catch them say, I can't do that. And sometimes I'll say, you know, you're right. If you say you can't, you definitely will not be able to do it, right. but don't you, don't say can't, you don't want to limit what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's like thinking about, yeah, the language you use, even with yourself, right. With self-talk and like how you're, you're framing things becomes really important, but 
you know, it, it's all just like this, this mindset thing, right? Like there's so many things that are completely out of your control. Like in my situation, like, you know, there are certain things that my body just like will not allow me to do most of the time. Right. Like right now with my, my physical condition and disability, but you know, that doesn't mean I'm not able to do other things. And that doesn't preclude me from, you know, feeling a certain way or, you know, engaging in sport. And so just really being conscious about how you kind of frame your world um, and, and how you interface with it. And I, I really do look at this, this injury and disability as an opportunity for me to become a better person, um, for me to, you know, engage with more individuals and really an opportunity for you to kind of examine what matters in life and, and what doesn't. Yeah. And I think you'll go into that a little bit more with Brooke's question. Actually, she had a bunch of questions, but we're going <laughs> to, she has, she has a bunch of questions that basically all are summed up into one question. Okay. And so you're going to have to bear with me on this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Brooke Gowdy asks, why mountain biking? Why this sport? And after such an incident, why did you come back? It seems like something keeps pulling you back into the sport. What is it? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, it's community really, right? Like it's, well, it's two things, right? Like that, that feeling we talked about on the trail where you really can't think of anything else but the trail, right? So that, that oneness, right? But then also the community is what, what keeps bringing you back. And, you know, I have had the opportunity to work with Brooke in quite a few situations, you know, community situations, um, community initiatives. And, you know, we have been, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, and a lot of conversations with people around, you know, um, diversity and equity and inclusion and, and all of that. And so it's not always easy, right? Like within the community, right? Um, but it still keeps bringing me back. It's There's something that I really do appreciate about, about the folks in the community, about where the industry is going, about the sport itself. Um, I see a really great opportunity for for, you know, BIPOC and, and for adaptive athletes, you know, within this sport. And I want to really do everything I can to allow other people to get into it. And, you know, thinking about how I got into the sport, you know, it was just as simple as an email. Right. And like, you know, I'm already kind of plugged into the outdoor scene and I have friends that mountain bike. So I was able to like, you know, ask people some questions like, Hey, I'm getting a bike. What do you think about this? Or like, is this a great helmet? Or like, what kind of shorts do I wear or whatever it is? But, you know, not everybody has that like same experience. Right. And so I want to do everything I can to ensure that people have a really like nice transition into mountain biking. And then once they're in mountain biking, they feel, you know, good and safe within their community. Yeah, it's it is such a great thing. Like I'd mentioned early on, I'm just getting my my girlfriend into mountain biking. We've been together for over a year, but it's it's kind of taken this long to get to that point. And she's she's seeing why it's like, to me, it's, it's, and maybe this will be a bad connotation, but to me, it's like a drug, Yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, and I, I use it so much for the mental wellness side of things and getting outside. And, and I think she's now realized what that actually can do for you and the, the positive stuff that comes with it. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. I, I definitely resonate with that. And yeah, it's just nice to be outdoors. Right. And then when you do connect with other other mountain bikers, there's just this like instant familiarity, right? Like 
They're like, oh, we know a little bit about this or a lot about that, or we could talk about trails or what kinds of things you like on a trail and you don't like, or, you know, funny stories. So that, that's something I really appreciate within the community. Yeah. Well, then we'll go to, to my question. That okay. Well, actually circles back. It's, it kind of, I think it'll, I think it will have you expand on your answer from Bryce's question, which is, and I, and I picked this up, um, from one of Payson's interviews, but I'd like to, you to expand on it more for the listeners. And that's non-attachment in your view on this mm-hmm. and to help the listeners stay present with whatever it is they're going through. Yeah, certainly. And so I think, you know, like, yeah, non-attachment is like a very, uh, you know, specific way of like kind of framing it, but there's ways I think to get to non-attachment. Right. And so like being present and being mindful are, you know, some of the ways to kind of work towards that end goal. Um, But for me, what that means is, you know, not necessarily being, you know, attached to people, places, things, thoughts, et cetera. That doesn't mean I don't have relationships like formed, right? Like, I do have even a relationship with, you know, my trauma and my accent and my disability, but the way that I choose to engage in that um, is a way that is more, you know, mindful and brings awareness to it. Um, So for me, like I, I was telling somebody recently, like the way that I kind of like interface with a lot of this is like, you know, uh, I frame it in a way of acceptance, right. Too. So um, acceptance, I think is kind of done on a daily basis and sometimes even in smaller increments than that, right? Like how, how accepting am I going to be of this particular situation? And it varies on a day-to-day basis, right? Some days are more challenging and some days are easy breezy, but that's, that's something that you have also too, as an able-bodied individual, right? Like I am just using specifically like my trauma and my my accent and my disability in that particular realm. Right. But I can apply that with, you know, to lots of different aspects, but it's really just thinking about, you know, how much kind of weight am I going to give to this today? And, and it doesn't mean either ignoring things, right? Like that's not really the point of it. It's just being aware of sometimes your thoughts and your feelings and knowing that there is like a place for them, but then also kind of choosing to engage with them in a way that's not going to consume your, you know, all being and you're everywhere with all. So you're, you know, disheveled every day. Um, I've been practicing this for, you know, quite some time. And it's funny because last year before my accident, like that was my big goal for the year was to really like engage with non-attachment more. I didn't know that this was like the form that it was going to really, you know, take shape in. I was like, oh, it's going to, you know, be, you know, towards my career, towards my, you know, relationships, towards friends, towards family, you know, just, you know, finding ways to kind of like begin to practice that. And I wouldn't even say begin to practice it, but deepen that practice. And then, you know, the accident happened. I was like, well, isn't that interesting? That is, (laughs) this is why I've been working on this. And so I felt pretty, pretty well prepared to kind of like take the practice to the next level. But it is like, it's a daily thing, right? It's not something that you just do once and, and you're done with it, right? Like it, it is an active way of living. It's an active way of engaging with like the, the things in your life, both positive and negative and neutral. So. Yeah. Life takes practice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With that, is there anything that you want to 
close with or anything that we didn't discuss that you'd like to to get out into the into the world into the listeners before we wrap this one up yeah i mean i think the big thing is just you know really you know making space and and holding space for adaptive athletes right like i think you know it's really important for for us as like mountain bikers and the outdoors community to really you know start to engage more with with um, adaptive athletes and understand their needs and really starting to bring folks into the conversation, right? Like there are so many conversations going on, but it would be great to like have a seat at the table for everyone. Right. And so we could really start to have this synergistic conversation. So like, for instance, when a trail system is being built, you know, adaptive athletes are, are being thought of, right. Or, you know, that's just one example. So just bringing folks into the fold, like early on into the conversation, instead of like this afterthought and being like, oh, geez, sorry, we didn't know, you know, like, let's just, let's just start to work together. Um, so that's something I want to do. And, you know, I do really want to like, you know, thank the individuals that have, you know, helped me get to this point. Right. And so, you know, obviously everyone that's, you know, contributed to my GoFundMe and my family, uh, my partner, my, you know, dog and, you know, Prolazumi and Bowhead and High Fives and Vita and Casa and BICP and Craig Hospital and everyone at New Ability. Um, and, you know, everyone that's also like helped me get outdoors with, you know, River Deep and Access Unlimited. It's just been, there's been an incredible amount of support that I've had this last year. And I would say that like my, my success and my quality of life and well-being would not be, would not be here without all of those folks. So. Yeah, that's actually where I was going to go next is the, oh, yeah. the support you've received and the, and the GoFundMe that you have going. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, that's huge in in life in general, you know? Yeah. I mean, having a good support no- network around you as a, as a, a person, as a person is huge. And, and for you, it's, it's even more huge, you know? So it, do you want to list those people again and be really purposeful Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, I obviously really want to thank everyone that, that did contribute to the GoFundMe that is really helped me. I'm, I'm still, you know, living on that money and it's been really uh, important for me to be able to focus on recovery on a full-time basis. And it's a privilege that not a lot of people get. And I'm, I'm aware of that and I'm really thankful for it. Um, And then obviously, you know, Pearl Izumi for everything that they've provided me um, this year with, you know, traditional athlete support to going above and beyond with providing me with the tools I need as an adaptive athlete. Um, and then, you know, Bowhead Corp, obviously for, for bringing me onto their sports development team and really allowing me to start to interface with athletes in this sport in a way that I had only dreamed of in the beginning stages of my accident. Um, and then all of the funding I've received from high fives, uh, being able to, you know, go towards, you know, adaptive equipment, um, you know, for my bike, uh, also, you know, being able to engage in acupuncture and adaptive exercise an extended period of time. That's, that's been really helpful. And then, you know, sending me out to Montana, um, Vita mountain biking series is an organization I worked with before my accident. And, you know, they've been incredibly supportive with this transition allowed me to engage in ways that kind of make sense, even with like my wild schedule. Um, and then, you know, Kootenai Adaptive Sport Association and BICP for really taking me under their wing and allowing me to start to engage in advocacy and, and working towards some really large goals. Craig Hospital, 
uh, for everything they do, which is just, you know, too much to even mention. Same with new ability. And then um, the foundations that partner with Craig and High Fives like River Deep and Access Unlimited that have allowed me to start to fly fish and see kind of what that looks like. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you think about fly fishing before? Yeah, actually, I uh, one of my college PE classes was fly fishing. Um, so I had decided back in college, I was like, I really want to learn how to fly fish. Um, but it really wasn't until this, this injury that I was, you know, really afforded the opportunity to do so. And so I've been really fortunate enough to be able to get on the river quite a few days. And then my friend, uh, Claire Smallwood organized, um, a float trip that was donated by, um, elk, uh, elk river guiding, uh, company uh, to allow me to also float. So I've been really fortunate enough to have like the opportunity to get on the river and like, and explore this, this new sport. Actually, Clayton just gifted me a rod the other day. So now I have my first fly fishing rod. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I'm not a fly fisherman, but I do know that where I live in what's known as the driftless area, which is a part of Southwest Wisconsin Mm -hmm. and Southeast Minnesota and Northeast Iowa, Northeast or North, yeah, Northeast Iowa, Northwest Illinois. The fly fishing is world class. Oh yeah. You know, because of all the the steep topography and the in the in the really, you know, amazing freshwater streams. Yeah. And everything. So I'm I'm glad that you that's another thing that you found, you know, a passion for outside. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's also just another way to experience nature, right? And to connect. And it is interesting having something that's so you know, adrenaline focus, like mountain biking, and then something that is the complete opposite, like fly fishing. That's not to say there isn't some like adrenaline involved with like, you know, with, with actually like catching a fish. Right. But like, there's like a huge contrast to the two sports. And I, I really do appreciate the contrast. So. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Annika, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy and wild schedule, as you said, to take the time to sit down and record this interview. This is, you know, the adaptive side of things is something that I've been trying to expose more of. At least I had the fortunate opportunity to have Lacey Heward on um, back in June of 2021, who is, mm-hmm. who is an adapt, who's been an adaptive athlete since she was a child. Yeah. Um, both on the, on the ski racing side of things, mountain biking side of things, and any, anything else that she can get into. You know, and then meeting Jeremy P. McGee um, in person in Bentonville and him and I like connected right away. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, when we sat down, we recorded for over three and a half hours. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we still text each other regularly, which is pretty yeah. awesome. So I, uh, I have a show coming up or scheduled with Joe Stone from the oh, Teton, yeah. from yep. Teton Adaptive and with the specific agenda to talk about trails. Yeah. And you know, and so I, I, it's something that I want to continue to, to push on because there's, you can design adaptive access into trails and still make the trails amazing for everybody. That doesn't mean dumbing them yep. down. And I think absolutely. a lot of people get, go sideways with that and don't understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, thanks for showcasing adaptive athletes and, you know, all of those people are like people I really look up to and kind of lean on. I, I just met Joe Stone up in Canada too. So I was really exciting. I was like, oh, this is really cool. <laughs> um, he's up to some really, really awesome stuff with Teton Adaptive. And that's like, that's, you know, something that's like on my radar too. I'm like, I got to get out there and, and ride with, with everyone out there. So, yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate this again. I mean, it's, it's been incredible to, to meet you 
remotely. Hopefully yeah. someday we get to meet in person. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank paths. you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. And I'm, you know, happy to share my story and appreciate you holding space for that. So. Oh, for sure. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Links to the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. Our next episode features Joe Stone, the director of mission for Teton Adaptive based in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. In this interview, we go even deeper on adaptive mountain biking and universal trail design. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to support the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.